0: All right, let me pray for us as we uh, continue uh, the next just couple of weeks through 1 Timothy. Uh, Father, thank you for your grace to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, and we thank you for your spirit that dwelt in him and that, uh, that you used him to write these words to us. And Father, we ask you would help apply them to our hearts by that same spirit and that we would be in agreement with them. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, so we're in 1 uh, Timothy still. Uh, Stephen didn't make it through his whole section last week, so he kindly gave the last few verses to me. Uh, and we'll see if I can get through all of my section. And if not, I'll just hand off again to him next week. And I won't feel a bit bad about it. Um, i got to do this thing. 1 Timothy, we're in uh, verses 6 through 16 today. So I'll just read the... Read to start. So this is starting in First Timothy six: six, six, six. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation, and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and, by, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified, of the good, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but uh, songs continuously run through my head. And so whenever I read this passage, I think of two songs: you know, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. This is the passage it comes from. And then also the children's song: King of kings and Lord of lords, glory. Hallelujah. Um, you can imagine, you know me a little bit, which one spends most of the time in my head. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the big glorious one. Um, so we have a continuation. Um, so this first verse here, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. Last week you ended, I don't know how far Stephen got into it, I had to cut out a few minutes early, so I don't remember exactly how he approached verse 5, and I forgot to put it up in my slides, but verse 5 says, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, and so he's contrasting that by saying, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, even though wicked men think it's a means of great gain, it actually is. And so Paul, obviously, is not double speaking here. I mean, he didn't forget what he said literally a half a sentence before. And so what he's doing is he's contrasting with what what men think of as great gain, which is worldly things, and what actually is great gain. What does godliness gain us? Um, And that gain is eternal life, And it's the treasures stored up for us in heaven by our good works. Those are the great gains that Paul references here. And the way to do this is through contentment, right? Uh, Godliness is a means of great gain if we are content. And then he continues down this line of thinking and he spends the next ten verses or so Talking about what the love of money looks like, and therefore what discontentment with God's good gifts to us looks like. And so he's contrasting contentment with love of money. You see that back in verse five? He says, These men, sordid men, are looking for great gain in godliness, and he's talking about worldly gain. He's talking about money. And then he says, But it is means of great gain if you are content. For this is verse 7. For we, I don't know how to click this thing, goodness. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. This is an old slogan, right? You can't take it with you. Uh, it's, a, it's a play too. I think, I think it's actually called, You Can't Take It With You. Um, This is, it becomes kind of a trite saying for us, but this is the reason that Paul gives us for why we should be content. And you can think of it in a broader context, right? James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, and those good gifts are all the things that we have. Not just the small things, but all the little things that we have. This particular passage, um, and just the love of money in general, has been on my mind for a couple of months uh, because my wife and I were fighting over whether or not I actually might have just a tinge of the love of money in my life and I vehemently denied it for a considerable amount of time until thankfully by the Spirit and some other rebukes, uh, I realized maybe perhaps I am not content with the things God has given me. And I think that is a lesson for all of us. We tend to think In outsider terms of what the love of money looks like, we tend to think of, uh, uh, there's a, a Pink Floyd song, Money, it's gas. And he says, I fly first class, but I desire a Learjet. We think the guys who have love of money are the guys who can afford first class and want the Learjet, or the guys who have a Learjet and want the 747. Those are the guys who actually struggle with money. But Paul does not let us off. He says, this is the sign that you love money. You're discontent. Here's where it lies. This is the root of the love of money. Discontent with, and he goes on, right? He says, you didn't bring anything into the world. You will take nothing out of it. Verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And so, lest you think he's just saying general contentedness, and he says, no, literally, the actual food you have in front of you and the actual covering, the, the clothes you have, the house you live in, those are the things you must find contentment in. And if you can't, you are in danger. And it is a very big danger. We're going to walk through this love of money for a while because this is the thrust of the passage is why love of money is a danger, why the man of God, the the pastor, the preacher, especially must flee from these things, and why it can lead to death. Um, This passage, I don't know, we'll we'll talk about this just briefly. So it's addressed to the man of God. You see this um, in verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God. And that is a reference uh, to the idea of a man called out by God to do his work. And in the New Testament, oftentimes the way Paul uses it is in the work of pastoral ministries. And so, he's specifically saying to Timothy, Timothy, you as a man called by God, a man of God, you have to be aware of these things. But as one of my former pastors used to say often, what must be true of pastors should be true of all men. And so even though this must be true of a pastor, it should be true of all of us. That we are content, that we are free from the love of money, and that we desire the eternal life to which we are called. And that we desire to give a good confession to that. So the love of money. I have multiple scriptures just kind of randomly pulled from the Old and New Testaments. This is all through scripture. This sin is old, and it goes deep into the hearts of men. So I've got a few pulled up. "A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that it, what does not know that want will come upon him from proverbs. Proverbs, if you've read it, I could have pulled from almost any chapter in Proverbs a couple of verses on this idea. Um, then we have two quotes from the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, The dogs are greedy. This is a reference to false shepherds in Isaiah. The dogs are greedy. greedy. They are not satisfied and they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. So here's a mark that Isaiah gives of false shepherding. Again, Jeremiah says the same thing about false shepherds. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So this is not new. It's not something Paul is introducing that should surprise us. God's people constantly need to be reminded. We constantly need to be reminded that our hearts are fickle. And we can easily turn aside to money and to the things of this world. I'm going to go into the New Testament now, or I still have one for the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. You could, you could write books on this, right? The lottery is replete with this. The men and women who win the lottery, the big jackpots, higher rates of suicide, higher bankruptcy rates, higher divorce rates, higher kids who commit suicide, higher delinquent kids, you name it, within years, that money has completely corrupted the people who win it. There have been secular studies about this, that winning the lottery is not good. Getting big chunks of money corrupts because our hearts are already corrupt towards it. Now, New Testament this is Jesus. Now the Pharisees who were lovers... Well, Jesus isn't saying this, but he's, it's in a passage where Jesus is talking. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. And so what is one of the marks of a Pharisee, a false teacher of Israel? Love of money. Second Peter, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness." So here you have Peter, addressing false shepherds in the New Testament, referring back to Balaam, which is from Numbers. So very early in our scripture, the same sin. And then I did this for two reasons. One, I I wanted to irritate some people who are not sure if Hebrews was written by Paul. Um, And so I just put it on the same screen And you can decide for yourselves if this is the kind of man who would write this thing. Uh, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Whether or not Hebrews was actually written by Paul, it's clear that this idea of contentedness and love of money is directly linked by the writers of Scripture. First Timothy this is Paul writing to Timothy again not addicted to wine or pugnacious he's talking about deacons but gentle gentle peaceable free from the love of money. And second Timothy for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And then again in second Timothy for Demas having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is this is just a constant theme, and I think one of the things that happens when we see a constant theme is we ignore it uh, because it's always there, <laughs> and so it just becomes like this this uh, low hum in the background, um, and we think, you know, we give um, we." We pray. We, we are generous with our money. This is all the things that we think about ourselves. And so this, this isn't about us. Um, I, this is a chart. And now, now we get into a little bit of a sticky situation because this is an area where I have envy <laughs> and where I have had a much bigger house than I currently have. And so I have double envy for you who have bigger houses than me and ...of my former self who had houses bigger than me. And this is an area that in the last two months has come to light in my own life. That I have this. But let's just look at this for a moment. I pulled this up from an article... ...specifically from this article because this graph links two things. It links household size... ...which is the red line starting up the top left and dropping... So that's people in the household. And then on the bottom two are the mean and the median, or the mean, oh man, this is why I'm not a math teacher. The average household size and the median household size are the two different blue lines. And you can see they climb dramatically from the 70s. And this quote at the bottom this is from the article. But when it comes to the new houses that Americans are buying and living in, we see a much brighter picture of life in the U.S. Now, what has happened in this chart is the square footage, which are these little blue numbers. I've got to figure out how to do this pointer thing. I keep pointing to the space. You guys can't tell. Huh? No? Which one is it? Thanks. Hey! So these numbers right here, 551, 507, these are the square footage per person in 73, okay? So every person that lived in a household had 500 and some odd square feet per person. By 2015, it's double. Now I think it's pretty hard to argue that if we're looking at this chart and thinking about whether or not it's a much brighter picture of life. It's kind of hard to argue that that's actually a brighter picture of life. We have all this space now, and we never talk to one another. We never love one another. We never think about one another. The space has not made it a better home. And yet, this is the whole United States, right? This is the world. And my challenge to us is not you whether or not we have a big enough home or a small enough home or what size home is, this is a question we should ask in a lot of areas of our life. Do we look exactly like the world? That is a question we need to be asking consistently when it comes to money. Do we look like the rest of the world? Because we are not called to be like the rest of the world. We are called to be like Christ. Christ. And so everywhere that this touches our money, this kind of thing is, is the thing we need to be looking for. Oh, what did I just do? I'm telling you, me and this thing, we'll get along someday. These sorts of charts, you could pull up on almost anything in the world. How much we spend on food, how much we spend on fast food, how much we spend on television, how much we spend on cars, how much we spend on this, that, I could have pulled up almost any chart about this. And the question would come down, do we look like the world or not? And that's not the only question we need to be asking ourselves, but it is a question that we need to be constantly asking ourselves. There are reasons to have big homes. There are reasons to have multiple cars. There are reasons to have all sorts of things, big food budgets. All of these could be indications of life. Right? Are they? Is the question. Oh, I don't know what's going on. Do I have just a blank slide? I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> so this is, this is from 2 Corinthians. I was playing around with animations and apparently left some in. Um, this verse for years now. Yes, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, that's not that's not child re, like it's not the rate of childbearing. So there's it's dropped about a half a person per house over 50 years. But, but that still probably has something to do with how many kids we're having. It's yeah, it definitely is linked to how many kids we're having. Right. Yeah, but even by the 70s, there weren't a lot of parents living with, like, and you could probably argue that our generation, <laughs> we've kind of upped the household size because we stick around in our parents' basements. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For this is not for the ease of others. He's talking about giving away, being generous. This is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. So he says, don't think of being generous and giving things away as helping others and afflicting you. Like you're you're trying to make yourself suffer. You don't want to be an ascetic. You don't want to, right? Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy. You don't want to have that kind of thought. But by way of equality, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that... Their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. I don't know how to do this. Okay. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Or I'm not going to break this down because this isn't the point of the whole lesson, but this so that in the middle there, that's the reason we're supposed to be generous. And if you read that, it's basically... So that when you're needy, that's a different way of looking at generosity. That's a different way of looking at money. That's a different way of looking at stuff. And this is the way of godliness in money and stuff. Paul says it's not to ease others, and that is what we think being generous is all about. It's not for your affliction which is the holy side of giving things away. Look at how much I have suffered by giving away my stuff. That's me, just so you know. That's my sin. That's where I like to sit. Look at my affliction. You see it. It's good and great and godly. But by way of equality, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need. So just realize that the way we generally think about stuff as Americans is not the way Scripture talks about thinking about stuff. And so this this passage, which Stephen will hit on next week, where it says um, in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be conceited or to fix their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And I want to let you know that that's all of us. We are all of us rich, including all of you here. Unbelievably wealthy. Some of you just spent some time in Africa. Unbelievably wealthy, right? I can't see y'all. Where's your brother? Is he not up here? Oh, he's, he's just sitting down, right? Unbelievably wealthy. Um, we just need to start reorienting our lives in this way. So... Greed, the love of money. Here are some ways that just in general, we have love of money. We show love of money. We're ungrateful. This again is an area that I am just coming to terms with in my own life. We we don't thank God for the things he gives us, right? This is Paul's point here. For we have brought nothing into the world. So that means everything we have was a gift to us. And we are ungrateful for those things. And we're ungrateful mostly because we never even think about it. This morning, so I live in a small house. My young, not my youngest, Mercy, who's two, she says, out of the blue, really, this morning, sitting at our dinner table, our breakfast, you know, having breakfast. And she goes, mom, we have a big house. We have a big house. We have a big house. And I was like, all right. (laughs) And then I thought, you know what? You're right. We do have a big house. You know, we've got a three bedroom house. We can have a much smaller house and we should still be grateful for that. Right. Gratefulness related to this. Right envious. We are always envious of either those who are able to be content with less or those who seem to be okay being grateful with the great abundance God has given them. And we think, well I could be grateful with that kind of stuff. I mean who couldn't be grateful with that kind of wealth? Right? Richard and I were just talking about this. This is and he didn't even know I was going to be nailing the nailing thing to the fence post this morning. This, this, this is us, right? We, we love to think of how grateful we could be if only we had that thing, right? This is, this is where we get into some real sticky issues. How about this one? Not being wise stewards. This was a conversation that wasn't related to specifically money. Uh, that we had at our book club a few weeks ago. We're reading uh, the little book on the Christian life by John Calvin. And he's talking about self-control. This is what he says. Of these, of a few different things, self-control means purity and self-restraint. And we go, oh yeah, yeah. That's exactly what self-control means. Purity, self-constraint, yep. And then these two things. As well as... And this is where Calvin does his knife work, right? Blamelessly and carefully using the things we have. And acting with patience when we lack anything. Right? I know, I'm it's not a sermon. I'm just talking about the text here, okay? I'm just trying to flesh out what maybe Paul's getting at. Uh, we're not wise stewards. We don't think about the big grand picture. And so I'm going to do something I I didn't do last time, but historically when I've taught Sunday school, I learned this from another mentor of mine. Uh, He always recommended a book every time he taught. Um, there's There's a man named Randy Alcorn. Is anyone familiar with Randy Alcorn? Has anyone read any of the stuff on money by Randy Alcorn? Yeah. Prepare yourself, okay? This is called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. There's a smaller version called Managing God's Money, and then there's a, like a micro book called The Treasure Principle. All of it comes out of this big book. You may not agree with everything Randy has written about money. I guarantee you cannot walk away from this book because all he basically does is just talk about all the scripture that talks about money in about 600 pages. And there is no way you will walk away from this going, I'm a good steward. I pretty much know what's up. I've, I've been faithful with all that God has given me. And uh, I'm grateful for every single piece of it. That book will not let you do that. So we are not wise stewards. Not generous. And what do I mean by this? I, I put down routine giving. Um, this, is, this is a way that generosity masquerades itself, right? Right? we get into habits of giving and we never evaluate that habit of giving, right? Whatever we give is what we give. It becomes habitual. It's never evaluated and we get into this routine. And routines, although helpful for us as humans, are rarely helpful for us towards godliness, right? In general, the more routine your life is, the more routinish your godliness is, the less and less godly it grows over time. Because you're just kind of rolling along. Rolling, rolling, rolling. I told you, I sing a lot. Uh, not well, but I do. So these are some ways in which greed and the love of money work. Oh, and that's from last time's lesson. that uh, I forgot to delete that slide. So then here is the antidote, right? The first antidote, be content. The second antidote, verse 11, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the gift of eternal life. Flee is kind of an unusual word, I would think, because if you're like me, you know of a passage or two that talk about fleeing. They're up here. What do we generally associate the scriptural command to flee with? Somebody? Joseph? And what was Joseph fleeing from? Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife. Sexual sin, right? That's, that's in our mind what we think of when we think of fleeing. Sexual sin. Joseph is the physical, actual example of fleeing it. But then we have 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 10.14 is idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, back to lusts. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then I put this other one up here because I want us to link in our minds the fact that Paul is thinking of both sexual immorality and greed in the same sort of way. Ephesians 5.3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. How often have you thought of things that are greedy as so silicious... That we shouldn't even talk about them. Is it perhaps that our the milieu, right? That the way of our world right now for us. That greed is such a part of all of our lives. Not just personally, but just in general. Everything is about this. Everything in the world is about money. That we don't think of the, the sins of greed as... As not off, they shouldn't even be spoken of. They're so horrible. And yet, all of our news, <laughs> I don't need to remind you of what is actually in the news last week, right? President Trump being impeached over whether or not there was quid pro quo, usury, right? Use of money, greed, whether or not he was greedy for gain. That's what was going on. Now, you can disagree and We're not getting into the politics, but that's what the news is talking about. They won't call it greed, but that is actually what they're accusing the president of. He was greedy for gain. He wanted the presidency so bad he was willing to do this thing to gain it. Do we think of greed like we think of sexual immorality? Is it such a scary thing that we think we shouldn't we should fight it, you know. We should think about how to be generous. We should think about how to use our money wisely. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, you know, this is another thing to take care of in your life. Flee from it. Right? That's, that's a very different way of thinking about money. That's very un-American. It's very... Shall I, shall I say, unevangelical, right? How do we measure the success of most churches, if we're honest? How big is their building? How big is their budget? How many people go there? How many people have they sent out? How big is their missions budget? That's, that's all tied to this idea. Success is only and ever. The dollars. Do we think about what it means to flee from it? And that should hopefully cause us to stop and think, maybe I haven't understood this sin at all. It's caused me in the last two months to think, maybe I haven't understood this sin at all. Um, I read this book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, I couldn't remember if it was right before we got married or right after, but uh, I have a date in here that I bought it after we were married, which means it was in the first year of our marriage, and it was, it shook me to the core, uh, just thinking about money in a way that I hadn't before, and I don't think anyone probably would have accused me from, of being not generous, I don't think anyone would have accused me of hoarding my money before, and yet afterwards, I couldn't think of anything other than I'm a hoarder and I'm not generous. And I, I don't do that. And then seven years later, come to find out I have not actually fled from this. And very few of us have taken it to that level. Very few of us have actually fled from the love of money. Because money is easy, right? It's, it's not the sort of crime like sexual immorality where the stain of it kind of lingers, right? Sexual immorality has this still, even with all that's going on in the sexual revolution, there is some sort of ickiness attached to it. We have a very hard time putting an icky factor on greed. Unless it's the guy who bought the Learjet, right? That's gross. That's disgusting, But pretty much everybody else, eh, probably not greedy. I mean, nobody else is going to buy a Learjet tomorrow, so we're good. The solution, right? Now that I've pinned us all to the wall and we have like seven minutes, it's good. you got lots to do next week, Stephen. I'm just going to leave the rest to you. (laughs) Um, Here's the solution. Flee these things. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Um, th- these first things, you could go into lots of different um, looks at what each of these actually mean. Um, I think in general, godliness is a good sum term for all of these things. I think that's the way Paul thought earlier. I don't know if I got this on the slide. Yeah. Yeah. Godliness is gain, right? In this same book, uh, actually the passage I taught the last time, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Uh, verse six, godliness actually is a means of, means of great gain if it's coupled with contentment. Verse 12, take hold of eternal life. And Why did I put that in here? Well, Paul himself couples it together. Um, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Godliness is getting us gain.